I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week. We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Listener note. This podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics, or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are back with Helen and Jessica from PCS Advantage, and we are wrapping up season two. It was awesome coming along with you this year on your journey towards your specialist certification. All four of us are so happy to have some part in the process, and we can't wait to celebrate you when the results are posted in June. That being said, we have one last episode for you to try and wrap things up and answer some last minute questions before you head into test day. We always figure four heads are better than two when it comes to answering questions like this. So we all came together to answer the questions and send you off with confidence. We're going to jump right into some questions now because we want to keep this episode short and sweet so you have plenty of time to continue your studies after listening to this episode. Someone asked us for tips on how to stay out of the weeds and topics you aren't as familiar with or settings you haven't worked in. This is a great topic. Maybe think about the material in terms of specific patient cases instead of trying to memorize a bunch of facts. Ask yourself, what is important to understand for examinations, for treatments, prognosis, et cetera. 
For example, in the NICU, what are key features of the examination? What would be appropriate interventions unique to the NICU setting? And what are potential prognostic outcomes for NICU babies? Also, focus on unique characteristics of the setting or patient populations that differentiate them from others. Test questions will likely focus on key knowledge unique to that setting or population. A small plug here to head back to our specific episodes over the last few weeks where we interviewed someone with a PCS from each of the practice settings. I think they really did a wonderful job outlining exactly what Helen mentioned here regarding key features of examinations, common outcome measures, and unique focus areas. For example, in our acute care episode, Kara Arps mentioned safety being a huge priority in acute care and to focus on acute changes in function, not overall function. In early intervention, Marissa talked about family involvement and education, and in the school setting, we discussed the importance of impact on the learning environment. Each setting has some pearls, and knowing them can help you at least get started answering a more challenging question. Another question was for recommendations for studying the different genetic syndromes. The fact is that you will never know everything about all genetic syndromes because there are way too many. However, many genetic syndromes have similar features such as hypotonia, cognitive impairment, etc. Maybe consider grouping syndromes that have similar features and outcomes. We also talked about this in our outpatient pediatrics episode with Katie, and I loved Katie's thoughts on this. If you know something about the condition, draw on a similar population. If the question is asking about a rare genetic condition with hypotonia, how would you maybe compare that to a child with Down syndrome? You might be able to narrow your answers down at least a little bit. I love that. That's great advice. Don't get caught up on the little tiny features that separate one condition from another, but think bigger picture and how the bigger picture things will affect future development. Okay, next up, we had somebody ask about how to stay sane while waiting for test scores. March to June can be a really long time to wait. Be Elsa and let it go. Assume you passed. Also, this exam is really just helping to give you an additional credential and increase your knowledge in pediatric physical therapy. It's not the end all be all necessarily if you do not pass. You will still be licensed and you'll still be able to practice physical therapy. Even if you don't pass, you've gained so much knowledge in your studying already that it's just going to make you a better clinician in the long run. This was something I had to keep reminding myself of. All right. I love this next question. And we had a few people ask, so what level of detail do I need to know for outcome measures and their ages, content, et cetera? One person stated that they don't really have access to many of them, so it's a little bit hard to memorize the little details when they don't have access to the actual test. I suspect that there will be exam questions that will require you to identify age ranges and the functions of tests, such as comprehensive, gross motor, quality of life, etc. For example, you need to know that you cannot use the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales with an eight-year-old, but instead you could use the BOT2. I don't think you need to have access to all of the tests to understand how the tests should be used. The PCS Advantage Study Guide is organized into types of tests to help therapists think about them in terms of their purpose and clinical use. That seems to be a logical way to group them by similarity. If you don't have our study guide, for one, you missed out on a great resource, 
But two, you can find a lot of that information online just by um, looking up the specific test. I agree. It is a great resource, Helen. (laughs) You should definitely understand the different types of psychometrics of tests, such as validity, reliability, minimally detectable change, and minimal clinically important difference, and so on and so on. But I don't think it's necessary to memorize the specific values for each test. For example, a test question may provide reliability stats and ask you to interpret its clinical relevance, but they wouldn't expect you to tell them what the reliability stats actually are for that specific outcome measure. We just had our outcome measures review episode and went through some of the common tests. Google is your friend, and you can pretty easily find at least the general concept of the test, the age ranges, etc. with just a quick search. You should also probably know if there are specific tests for specific conditions. For example, the GMFM88 for Down syndrome or the GMFM66 for cerebral palsy. Our next question was in regards to an APTA fact sheet on early intervention. Uh, The fact sheet stated that Part C IDEA is multidisciplinary when other sources say it's transdisciplinary. So I think with this question, it would be state-specific. So making sure you're understanding the definition of each model and being able to recognize them in practice would probably be a good place to start. The primary service provider model is transdisciplinary although not all states and local counties actually use a PSP model. Therefore, they could be using a multidisciplinary or an interdisciplinary model. So going back to that, I just think understanding the definitions, all four of us kind of agree. If you understand the definition and can kind of pull from that, you probably will be setting yourself up for being able to answer a test question relating to that. So another person reports struggling a bit with things that require pure memorization of different numbers, age ranges, lab values, normal values. They would like any tips on tackling this. I think for things like age ranges and lab values, understanding general concepts and cutoffs are good. The question writers for these tests want their questions to be a good question that is not easily challenged. And what I mean by this is if they know that certain developmental skills or lab values have some variability in their numbers or ages, depending on resources, they will likely want to stay away from these gray areas. For example, if you suspect a child has a muscular dystrophy and you're looking at the CK values, these can really vary depending on age. So a test question probably wouldn't use a CK value of 350 and expect you to know if it's high or low because that value is right at the high-low cutoff for many of the ages and is a little bit of a gray area. However, if you see a value of 500 or more, you would know for sure that it's high because it's high for any age range. So I think ultimately look for the numbers that you know are going to be abnormal and just stay out of like this one's 352 versus this one's 323. Just know high highs and low lows. Same for developmental milestones and reflex integration. Age ranges can be huge for these. General knowledge of when things happen is important. I think the most important thing to focus on when taking the test is when it would definitely be abnormal for a child not to be doing something. Someone asked if there were any topics that we felt weren't covered in the prep courses, but would be good to study for the exam. There will always be material on the test that was not covered specifically in our prep course or in pushing pediatrics. However, we designed our PCS rehab knowledge material to cover all aspects of the DSP in an attempt to be as comprehensive as possible. No matter what you do, you're not going to know it all, and it's probably best to just be okay with that. 
We had a few people ask if there was an approximate score on practice exams that would likely indicate a passing score on the PCS. So we get asked this question a lot. I would probably consider it the most asked question of the year. So Sarah and I use the term quote unquote passing as a generic term for achieving more than 75% on a practice exam, as that's generally considered a passing test score. This has absolutely zero correlation to the actual exam. Helen and Jessica have done a wonderful job with the PCS Advantage exams, and they've modeled them after the DSP and the description of residency practice. So achieving more than 75% helped Sarah and I feel more confident that we had a good base knowledge of the wide variety of testable material. Helen, Jessica, Sarah, and I will be the first to say that none of us actually knows what is going to be on the exam. We just go by the DSP and try to tailor our discussions and questions around that. Each exam cycle is completely different in terms of passing. After all test takers complete the exam, it goes through a rigorous analysis. This is to your benefit, but also why it takes so long to receive scores. There's also a group of ungraded questions on the exam. You don't know which ones those are when you're actually taking the exam. These questions are being analyzed for their performance and could end up being thrown out or edited for future exams. I know it's hard. I am as type A as they come, but you need to try to focus on knowledge and less about a specific score on a specific practice exam. It's really not indicative of anything. What is indicative is if you are consistently getting questions wrong in a specific knowledge area, then you need to focus on that area in the coming weeks to make sure you don't have any gaps. I think that's well put, definitely focusing on what you're missing consistently and then focusing on that as you're taking the test. So Helen and I also get this question a lot, and we are not able to say whether or not a certain score on the PCS Advantage exams correlates to a passing PCS exam score. When our participants take the test, we don't really have information about how they are taking the test. Did they use notes? Did they look up possible answers? Did they stay within a certain time limit? Um, some start an exam and do not finish it. Some take it multiple times, so there'll be an element of test-taking bias. So ultimately, there are too many variables outside of our control or ability to track to be able to come up with a great answer for you. Um, but ultimately, as Sheila was saying, don't really focus on what your exact score is. Focus on what you're missing, what you're getting correct, and where you can brush up a little bit more. I was definitely one of those people that took tests multiple times just to give myself more practice with sitting for the exam and sitting for that period of time. Okay, so we had another listener ask about early intervention protocols for children with a diagnosis of genu valgum or knees. We definitely recommend reviewing normal musculoskeletal development and biomechanics for this one. Two great resources are the Campbell and Eskin text and PDF, PCS Advantage also has a little study guide on this. Campbell has an entire chapter on musculoskeletal development and adaptation and walks you through the normal progression of developmental biomechanics and the expected alignment you should expect at different age ranges. Neonates start with up to 15 degrees of genuverum at birth. This decreases over time and then shifts to genuvalgum around three to four years of age. By seven years, then these typically stabilize at approximately five degrees of valgus. Also, remember that something that is skeletal is not necessarily going to be quote unquote fixed by physical therapy. We cannot bend bones into positions that we want them to be in. So if a child has more valgus than you expect for their age, 
a referral to orthopedics should be made. You can help strengthen the muscles surrounding the joint, but you cannot fix a bony issue. All right, so our next question has to do with how test questions are written. The listener would like to know if there are any K-type questions. The answer is there should not be any K-type questions to the best of our knowledge. If you are wondering what a K-type question is, this refers to questions that have answer options such as A and B or A and B, but not C. The ABPTS Guide to Item Writing states that examinations include A-type items and G-type and F-type sets. An A-type item is a standard item with one correct answer. This item consists of a question stem and either four or five single answer options. G-type sets consist of two or more A-type items derived from a single clinical case. G-type sets can be written to simulate an actual clinical situation with longer vignettes or scenarios followed by two or four questions related to that case. F-type sets consist of two or more A-type items that are designed to be answered sequentially. So that might be a little more information than what you wanted, but those are the types of test items that you should be able to expect. So tell me if I'm understanding correctly, the F type sets are the ones where it's gonna be a locking answer, correct? Where you're gonna get a vignette, you're gonna answer a question, and then before you see the next question, that answer is going to lock. Is that the F type sets? Yes, that's what I am interpreting is that Okay, me too. Okay, someone was curious about the case study type questions or based on what Helen just told us, the G-type and F-type questions on the exam. They wanna know what to expect for a case study question and how many questions there are per case study um, group. So these questions can really vary. Some might have two, some might have four. The test changes each year, so it's all up to the test writers and what they want to create. Next question, what is the setup of the exam? How many questions? And is there a set amount per section? So we definitely recommend everyone take some time as soon as you're done listening to this to review the candidate guide. Everybody should have received this one when they registered for the exam. If you can't find yours, Google ABPTS Candidate Guide 2023 and it should pop up. I will even try to link it in the episode notes. We recommend reviewing this document as soon as possible. This will answer all of your test day questions, including test setup, questions per section, breaks, etc., we discussed this in our last episode, but we will reiterate. We recommend reviewing the testing software before you walk into the test. You can do this in advance from home. There are even a few sample questions here. No need to stress about this on exam day. Go in feeling confident because you're familiar with the software and the test flow. For anyone worried about breaks and snacks, you do have optional breaks every 90 minutes or however long it takes you to do 50 questions with a maximum of 90 minutes. Someone also asked if there are any videos or pictures on the test. I think this also is covered in the candidate guide as well. I do believe there's pictures, videos I don't specifically recall. One listener would like to know which is more desired for a screening test, high sensitivity or high specificity. This listener said that we stated in one of our previous episodes that specificity is more important. However, upon their own research, they found the opposite when they looked it up and they asked if it depends on what the screen is intended for. 
So if we said that somewhere, we definitely misspoke. And if someone could cue us into the episode where we potentially did misspeak, we would be grateful. Sarah and I work really hard to be accurate, but we're also human and we sometimes say the wrong things. We sometimes catch each other, but sometimes it just goes by. We can always addend and correct episodes, so please message us if you ever think that we've stated something incorrectly. Sensitivity and specificity is a really complex topic. In regards to them, though, you must always consider what the screening test or any test is designed to measure. There's always a trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. For a screening test in particular, in which an early diagnosis is beneficial, and when it is desirable to identify all those at risk for having a condition, high sensitivity is preferable to higher specificity. Sensitivity is the true positive rate and is the likelihood that someone with the condition will be positive on the diagnostic test. This refers to the percentage of children who are correctly identified as meeting criteria for a condition, and this condition has to be for which the test is designed to measure. It is valuable for confirming risk of a diagnosis on a screening test, and 80% sensitivity is preferable. For screening tests, it is desirable to have a high rate of false positives, so you are more confident that you have captured all children at risk for the condition. Since more formal testing is always recommended after a positive screening test, the false positives can be detected and ruled out appropriately. So here are a couple of definitions. Sensitivity is a true positive rate. It is the likelihood that someone with the condition will be positive on the diagnostic test. It refers to the percentage of children who are correctly identified as meeting criteria for a condition. It is valuable for confirming a diagnosis. And like I mentioned, 80% sensitivity is preferable. Specificity is a true negative rate. It is the likelihood that someone who does not have the condition will be negative on the diagnostic test. It refers to the percentage of children without problems who are correctly identified as such. So it is valuable to rule out the presence of a condition. In this case, 90% is preferable for a diagnostic test. Here's a general example for sensitivity and specificity, although the temp is not a screening tool. For the temp, Specificity is higher, indicating that it is a good measure for detecting large numbers of high-risk infants who are not developing typically and have delayed posture and motor development. Therefore, you are ruling out a gross motor delay, which is its intended purpose. Sensitivity is much lower, so it is not as sensitive for identifying or confirming cerebral palsy. I don't necessarily want to add to more confusion, but I think this needs to be said. Often people use the mnemonics spin and snout as definitions for specificity and sensitivity, but they are not definitions. They are mnemonics to remember the relationship of sensitivity and specificity for ruling in and ruling out diagnoses based on a test result. So another listener wanted us to review the difference between the Craig test and the Riders test. They wanted to know what the tests measure, femoral antiversion or femoral torsion. According to the sixth edition of Campbell, they are synonymous. It is referred to as the trochanteric prominence angle test, also known as the Craig or Rider test. 
the child will lie in prone with the hip extended and the knee flexed to 90 degrees. The examiner will use their hand to palpate the greater trochanter as the hip is internally rotated. Or at the point where the greater trochanter is the most prominent, the femoral neck is assumed to be horizontal. If the hip is externally rotated, this is antitorsion. And if it is internally rotated, this is retrotorsion. Okay, so speaking of torsion, there was a question about how to keep version and torsion straight, memorizing the values, and then keeping those values straight. So this is a really confusing topic for most of us, so I am hoping this explanation will help a little bit. First thing to remember is that antiversion and antitorsion are different. Antitorsion is twisting along the femur so that the head and neck is positioned more forward compared to the femoral condyles. I tend to imagine the head and neck in one plane and then the femoral condyles in a different plane with the abilities of these planes to reorient based on the amount of torsion in the shaft. Antiversion is not a rotation of the bone, but rather how the femoral head and therefore the neck and shaft is positioned in the acetabulum relative to a plane. So I tend to imagine the head, neck, and shaft moving as one unit. Individuals can have issues with either of these or both of them at the same time. So infants have about 30 degrees of antitorsion, which would result in an internal rotation of the thigh. They also have about 60 degrees of antiversion, which would result in external rotation of the thigh. These two forces are in opposite directions, but don't totally cancel each other out because the external rotation is about 30 degrees greater. So the net result is about 30 degrees of external rotation. All right, so our next question is a little less heavy on knowledge and facts, but we had someone ask about how do you determine your weak spots after you've taken your practice exams? So consider making some notes as you take your practice exams about topics that you felt less confident about when you were working through those questions. These are areas in which you can focus your study. Evaluate your practice test results by looking for trends and missed questions, such as statistics-related questions, questions involving particular diagnoses, such as genetic conditions, questions involving examination concepts, etc. This could help you focus your study time. The PCS Advantage questions provide an explanation of the correct answer for each question, and this could also help guide your studies. Also, pay attention to why you got the question wrong. Did you misread a direction? Was it a careless error? Was it a concept error where you just didn't understand what they were asking? Or did you understand the concept, but you didn't know how to apply it? Did you change your answer and second guess? Or did you jump to a conclusion before you read the whole question? Or maybe it was a straight study error where you just didn't spend enough time studying the relevant topic. Some of these things could really be solved by slowing down, making sure you read the question, highlight key concepts, and really pay attention to the question stem. What they are asking and am I answering that question? Obviously, you are coming up to the final days, so cramming in a study error problem may be a little challenging if you felt like you had a huge gap in some knowledge, but test-taking errors from misreading or jumping to conclusions can be solved now. Someone asked about 10 things in your daily study guide. So yes, I went back and looked up my study guide. It's still there on our shared drive with a lot of other materials. Some things that stood out on my daily study guide were lab values, especially the oncology levels, GMFCS levels, the torticollis severity levels, 
normal ranges for things like blood pressure, respiratory rate, pulse, especially in the NICU. I think I had some DMD prognostic information, some of the common outcome measures that I had trouble keeping straight, some common ortho conditions, spinal cord injury, and myelomeningocele levels and anticipated function. I had the rancho levels for both the pediatric and adults, so I could compare the two. So you can see most of mine were memorization type things, things you really just needed to see and remember multiple times. I wanted those things to be solid because they are easy once you remember them. I didn't want to stress about a question because I had trouble with the straight knowledge aspect of it. These are all knowledge level things and likely the questions are going to be more complex, but having the basics down helped me feel more confident that I could tackle a more challenging question. My study guide was similar to Sheila's. I also had a small study guide for outcome measures that I could just quickly look at um, as the reference to their age range and the primary use. And also remember too, each person's study guide is most likely going to be a little bit different because there were things that I couldn't remember that maybe Sheila remembered more easily or other group members remembered more easily. So I put some of the things that Sheila said, but then also other random things like the knowledge translation cycle that for whatever reason, I just could not remember the cycle. Um, so it, remember, everybody's study guide is going to be a little bit different. And it's definitely going to re- depend on what setting that you work in on a daily basis. I mean, I'm speaking a little bit for Kara, but she worked in acute. I'm guessing that she felt very comfortable with her normal oncology values. She uses them in her practice every day. Or Sarah, our other Sarah that we interviewed, who works in the NICU, like she's very confident probably in NICU normal values. So each of us is going to pick the areas that are outside of what we're doing and seeing on a day-to-day basis. Well, that was a little bit all over the place, but generally this is how last minute prep goes. You are zeroing in on those last minute details and ready to tackle the test. We hope that this was helpful and we're so thankful to have the added brainpower of Helen and Jessica here from PCS Advantage. If people are reviewing this in preparation for next year's test cycle, we cannot recommend their prep materials enough. The practice tests are an amazing way to analyze prep and identify knowledge gaps, and their study guides provide an additional lens with which to view the core material. Helen and Jessica, thank you so much. So that wraps up another season of Pushing Pediatrics. Each year, we strive to prepare another group of pediatric physical therapists in their goals to take and pass the pediatric specialist exam. We are learning and growing too. We definitely know we have room for improvement, and we look forward to making this offseason one of growth and development. The best way to help us is to like, subscribe, and share Pushing Pediatrics with your PT colleagues from around the globe. Another way you can support us is via our listener support link. Let us know if you have any suggestions for next year. We're always looking for growth opportunities. And please send us a message in June letting us know when you passed. We can't wait. Happy studying! Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.